After I burned out from a startup job I had in my early 30s, I spent years learning how to set better boundaries. I read books about it, followed Instagram experts. I even started a meditation practice called Fierce Compassion so I could finally feel confident saying no. Over the years, I've gotten a lot better at it, but I still find myself slipping from time to time. When I really care about a project, I can get so in the zone that I forget to take breaks, even bathroom breaks. And when I'm super busy, I don't always have the presence of mind to remember that slowing down will actually make me more effective in the long run. And sometimes life, the realities of being a parent, worker, wife, and a friend, make my boundaries feel just impossible to stick to. I'm Tiffany Jones-Brown, and this is Remotely Curious, a podcast from Dropbox that asks all the questions about hybrid, remote, or as we call it, virtual-first work. One of my very best friends from high school, Tiffany Crow, is thinking about the same sort of stuff. She's always been one of the hardest workers I know. And now that she's the Associate Chief Technology Officer for the District of Columbia, not to mention a mom of two and all-around busy person, that's even more true. Here she is. So I started my career in actually Teach for America. And, you know, there were absolutely no rules around sort of how many hours you should be working, what the expectations were for sort of like your personal life versus your work life. It was just you get the job done by any means necessary. So my work experience uh, from the outset has been one in which the job and the tasks and the things that you are responsible for are first, right? Like you get the job done and then you think about all the other things after. I think that expectation is actually still pretty typical. Tiff told us that as she matured in her career, she noticed people were starting to establish boundaries to prevent their work life from encroaching on their home life. But because of long work days and a sea of other priorities she needed to attend to, her balance was still off. Fast forward to the pandemic. Everyone is working from home, and Tiff says this opened up a whole new world for her and her family. I, you know, could work whatever hours suited me for as long or as short as I needed because everything that I needed was in one place. My kids were there. They weren't going to school. My husband was was at home. My job was at home. And so I found myself working so many more hours than I was before because I was just like, oh, like I don't have to stop. I can make dinner. I can do, you know, anything and continue to work. And so... That was really helpful to me as a parent, especially as we started to go back to school and we started to add activities. I realized I could do my job and not have to be tied to this nine to five sort of very basic schedule. I could still like take my daughter to school. I could still take her to some of her activities in the evening and then get back to accomplishing things in the evening at night, late at night many times or very early in the morning when I would wake up. So Tiff's problem isn't that she feels like she's in a tough spot with her boundaries. In fact, she's found this lovely new routine that works for her. What she's thinking more about is how to make sure the people around her are happy with their own work-life balance. But I recognize that I haven't established with my teams sort of that that works for them. 
right? I may send an email at 10 p.m. because that's when I'm working and I've like got, I've got a great idea. I'm on a roll. I've got something that like I'm really excited about or something that needs done urgently. And even when I know that they're not going to really get to it until the next day, I may send an email out or send a Teams chat or establish like a work list or something, right? So that sends notifications to people, you know, if it's 11 o'clock, if it's midnight, if it's one in the morning. And so how do I work in the way that's best for me, like to be the best version of myself and my job, accomplish the most, both personally and professionally, while honoring the boundaries of the people who work with me. And this is why I wanted to showcase Tiff's question for this episode. She's figured out what she needs, but now she wants to make sure that the people around her feel just as comfortable with their own setup. So I decided to talk to a professional, someone who can help me and you and my friend Tiff figure out what boundaries we might need. Dr. Andrea Bonnier is a licensed clinical psychologist on faculty at Georgetown University and an author and speaker for countless publications. She focuses on breaking down psychological constructs in plain English and wants to help people understand how the science of behavior can allow us to lead better lives at work and at home. Well, Andrea, thank you so much for being here. Thank you. I'm so glad to be on it. And how ironic that we're all speaking from our closets while we talk about boundaries and working from home. You are a practicing psychotherapist, a writer, a speaker, sometimes professor, sounds like also a mom of more than one child. So I'm curious, how do you set boundaries for your own life? Yeah, not very well at times, certainly. And I think the pandemic for so many of us, if not every single one of us, really highlighted highlighted the deficiencies in our boundary setting. So I've always been the type of person who's got a lot of stuff going on, and I'm not always good at setting boundaries. And so one of the things I try to remember is that it's good for everyone else when I set appropriate boundaries. And so I set boundaries by prioritizing them and realizing I don't have to be perfect, realizing that sometimes the boundaries get messed up and that's okay, I can start again tomorrow. But also realizing it's not selfish to set boundaries, realizing that it's not mean to set boundaries and that I really must set boundaries to teach my kids how important it is, to teach my clients that there are certain structures we have to abide by and I I can't answer the phone at 3 a.m. every night, right? And to also help people have a sense of predictability about where they stand because I think so many times with boundaries, we think we're mean for setting them, but really we're being mean for not setting them because we set somebody up to annoy us or disappoint us and we haven't told them the ground rules. And it's a gift for somebody to know what the expectations are. Yeah, I I'm somebody who struggles sometimes to be clear about boundaries. And I always think of that um, Brene Brown quote, I think it is, that clarity is kind. And that really helps me. And if I imagine if you're a people person, reframing this boundary isn't just good for me, it's good for other people too, could be super helpful. Exactly. And again, with the pandemic, my goodness, I mean, we were forced to set some boundaries or else we really were gonna start just breaking down. (laughs) So it's more important now than ever as we chart these new lives. 
Well, I want to back up even further in a way, and I would love for you to just explain to me what is a boundary and why do they matter? So a boundary we can look at in a bunch of different ways, but at its basis is some structure. Um, It's some sort of organization of what feels right and what feels not so right. It's a line that feels important to recognize. It represents often a value of ours. So maybe we have boundaries around privacy um, or boundaries around how people should speak to each other at our dinner table. They represent things that are important. And they're so important because without boundaries, we're prone to burnout. We're prone to being upset or feeling betrayed by people. We're prone to feeling violated. We're prone to feeling like we're not living in accordance with our values because, you know, we're not making time for the things that matter because we're spending time on other things that we think we're supposed to. But I feel like it's sometimes a buzzword. You know, everybody knows, oh, we should set boundaries. And then when you actually drill down, nobody really knows what that means and how to do it. So I'm so glad that we're having this conversation today. And that's really how I see boundaries in those aforementioned ways about really structuring a life where you have a sense of control when when you feel like you need it. Dr. Andrea told us that she thinks about boundaries as belonging in one of three categories. Number one, you've kind of got logistical boundaries, right? This idea of what hours am I going to actually be checking email? Um, You know, how am I going to define work versus home? Am I going to be taking calls on the sidelines of my kid's soccer game? You know, am I going to be interruptible on a weekend? This sort of logistical idea of where's the line between when I'm working And when I'm home, and of course, if we're working from home, it's really hard because there's not a natural type of structure there. It's up to us to say, this is my workday. This is not my workday. And the commute or lack thereof, that used to be a nice logistical boundary, right? This idea that I'm in work mode once I put on the clothes and get on the metro and go, and then we had wind down time. Whereas now, if you're just walking across your living room, How do you define that mindset shift from work to home? So we need to create that ourselves. And if you've been listening to this podcast since episode one, you'll know all about how to create that ritual. Take a walk, put on real pants, set an intention for the day, and then logistically shift. If you haven't heard this and you want to learn more about setting rituals, go back to episode one, where I talked to Casper, Turkayl, and Kershat Oshenk about how to create your own rituals. And that kind of ties into another type of boundary, which are the physical boundaries. So how do I define my space? Am I looking at a pile of dirty laundry all day while I'm also trying to be on a conference call? If I am, that's going to affect my focus. It's going to make me not be able to concentrate as much. So, you know, what are the smells I'm smelling? If I'm constantly distracted because somebody's making lunch in the kitchen, you know, if it's really noisy in my house because my kids and my dog are super loud... Those are all kind of physical boundaries. How do I define my senses enough to let myself focus? Is my chair super uncomfortable, but I've never bothered to change it because I just kind of fell into working from home and I was never intentional and mindful about getting a good setup. This is so worth remembering. Just making the time and space to be intentional about your setup. A lot of us, honestly, probably all of us, just weren't prepared for the chaos that was the past couple of years. 
I, for example, still find myself working from wherever I first happened to sit down that morning. I mean, I'm currently recording this voiceover in my closet. So don't get discouraged if your work life and personal life are hard to distinguish just because of your physical surroundings. Maybe work from your dining room table, take five minutes at the start and end of your workday to transition the space from home to work and back again. So move those permission slips, swap in your office supplies during the day, and then try to pack up your laptop and other work things and put a tablecloth down when work ends. If you're having a hard time with physical boundaries, a routine like this might help. And then the other types of boundaries really involve emotions and relationships. So emotional boundaries involve what we think is acceptable, how our values are represented. Is it okay for me to be expected to email back at 10 p.m.? You know, is it okay that I will drop everything, even at my daughter's piano recital, in order to return this call? Um, How do I think about vacation and time off? How do I think about my priorities? How do I think about what I expect from my employees, if I'm a supervisor or my colleagues, what kind of relationship is there? How much do I let in my coworkers in terms of my personal life? How do I and my coworkers communicate in terms of respect, in terms of privacy, in terms of all of those things? And I think we forget how important they still are in the workplace because I've got to tell you, all of my clients that deal with workplace uh, stress, a lot of it is involving sort of the emotional relationships, the way people talk to each other, the way people treat each other. This person does this and they don't realize it drives me bananas. It's not always about work stuff per se. It's about the interpersonal emotional stuff. So we've got logistical. How do I define work versus home? Physical. How do I define my space? And emotional. The idea that our emotional boundaries will tie to our values reminds me of something Elizabeth Uva Benene said in our episode on motivation. Since our values are different, what feels acceptable or not acceptable to us will be different too. So I can imagine the ways that setting boundaries, at least for me, can be really tricky. I'm wondering if you can talk, though, about some of the benefits to setting boundaries. What happens when people get really good at it? When they get really good at it, it becomes so much less awkward. It becomes really automatic. And it no longer feels clunky or weird, like the question of, ooh, is this too much for me to ask? It just becomes something that feels healthy. And when it's done in the right way, you're also more respectful of other people's boundaries because you recognize this is how we coexist. And so it becomes so much easier over time. And it is always so much easier to keep an appropriate boundary than to set it in the first place. So a lot of people are like, "Eh, I should probably set this boundary, but then they don't. And they realize that if they've never said it, it's so much harder to start from scratch after this boundary has never existed. You know, oh, you can't talk to me that way anymore. Okay, well, I've done that since you were a little kid. So good luck with that, you know, like that kind of thing. Maintaining a boundary, it's not the easiest thing if somebody's being difficult. But for the most part, if it's a healthy boundary and you're dealing with functional people, the maintenance part is pretty easy. You talked a little bit about this misconception people have sometimes that setting a boundary is mean. Are there any other misconceptions that you think people tend to have about boundaries? 
I think sometimes generationally, because this wasn't necessarily something talked about decades ago as much, maybe sometimes older generations might think it's sort of a a sign of entitlement to set boundaries or that it's selfish um, or that it's spoiled or that it's too much to ask or that if you have certain boundaries, that means you're high maintenance, that kind of thing. And, And certainly there might be folks that use the boundary label as an excuse for treating other people poorly, right? But I think that's few and far between compared to the very real benefit of setting healthy boundaries. My family are all very Southern. A lot of them are chain smokers. And I remember at one point as an adolescent, I decided I've had enough of this chain smoking. (laughs) And I said, hey, could you not chain smoke around me? I have a little bit of asthma. And it was like, they were sweet and they did it, but it was absolutely shocking to them that anybody Mm -hmm. who was younger would ask for such a thing that they were so used to. It was culturally bound. It was generationally bound. And they did it, but it was such a, it was as if I had dropped a, you know, a boulder in a cup or something. And so I imagine that's another reason that people have a, a rough time with it sometimes. And if you think of all of the ways that our culture allows certain people to set boundaries and not others, you know, how we think of age, how we think of gender, how we think of race and ethnicity or sexual orientation, you know, there are lots of ways where some folks have not been allowed to set boundaries and other folks have enjoyed the privilege of being able to set them no problem, right? And so there's all kinds of interesting dynamics that go into making it tough sometimes for us to actually set the boundaries that we want. Hmm. Well, you touched on this a little when you talked about how boundaries relate to what we value, but I'm wondering if you can say a little bit more about how do we recognize what our boundaries are? Like, how do we know if, I've, if someone's crossed one of our boundaries? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it really takes a level of insight and I think just a willingness to observe yourself over time because none of us are born knowing exactly where our boundaries are. And we have to sort of learn by our reactions what's going on. So I would say the first step is self-observation, saying, you know, what's important to me? What do I notice really gets me down or makes me feel really drained or makes me feel frustrated or resentful at somebody? And also thinking of the bigger picture of who is the person that I want to be and how can I structure my life in a way that is that person. So for instance, somebody trying to set the boundary of work versus home time and, you know, I don't want to answer an email at 10 p.m. on a weeknight or I don't want to be called at 10 a.m. on a weekend and say, I'm at a point in my life where, for instance, my family or my pet or my caregiving responsibilities with older relatives is fundamentally part of my priorities and values. That's who I am. And unfortunately, we're not all in the position of having the luxury of being able to say, these are the hours I'm going to work. And if you call me at this time, I'm not going to answer, of course, depending on our job. But we can often find some wiggle room. And the more clear we are with expectations on both ends, the more we can make decisions that are right aligned with our values. I see that in my own life. There are certainly times in my past life where the clinical load that I had in terms of number of clients or in terms of some of the intensity of of what they were struggling with was able to be different because I didn't have children yet. Or, you know, that might change once my children are all out of the nest. But we're allowed to change that as we see what's important to us in the here and now. So 
let's say I've done the work of really interrogating what are my values. I've really looked into uh, what is it that I get reactive about and from there started to understand what my boundaries are. And now I need to say something to somebody. I know there's a real art, it seems, to communicating what our boundaries are. Do you have any advice about the saying something? Mm-hmm. First is recognize that it's hard. A lot of us shy away from difficult conversations precisely because they're hard and awkward. So we say, no, thank you, and we avoid it. So recognize that it's going to be hard, but that, as I mentioned before, it'll get easier over time. And that if we invest in setting these boundaries, the next time maybe we don't have to because it's already been understood. Also, think about the context of the conversation. Don't be reactive about it. You know, so many of us, it's like, all right, that was the straw that broke the camel's back. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell my coworker she can't do that anymore. It's like, okay, that's not a healthy boundary conversation. That's a reaction. That's an upset reaction that might be very justified, but that's not a laying the foundation, communicative, respectful conversation. That can happen maybe the next day with some reflection where you're no longer making it seem like you're punishing the person because we don't want the boundary to seem like a punishment. It's more, here's what actually works. Here's what actually feels right. So the idea of choosing the right context, you shouldn't be upset. It shouldn't be a reaction. It should be a private conversation and it should be respectful. And thinking about listening too, maybe they want to say something as well. Maybe there's something that would help them respect that boundary. It's about moving forward. It, that's where the I statements can come into play. The old couples counseling cliche of I feel upset when you do this rather than why do you always do this, right? And so having that respectful conversation of, you know, hey, can we talk for a few minutes I've got to say, I've been struggling a bit when you've had the phone calls in the afternoon. Sometimes it's hard for me to concentrate. I was wondering if we could talk about maybe if you could do something about the volume. Being respectful, coming at it from an attitude of troubleshooting rather than accusation. Coming at it from an attitude of moving forward and also empathy. Sometimes a boundary conversation is about recognizing why the person might have trouble sticking to the boundary, and you can empathize with that. So let's repeat all of that. It'll be hard, but be sure to think about the context of the situation. Focus on the conversation moving you forward and try to be respectful and empathetic. So how do we set boundaries with people who are challenging for us? Oh, my goodness. I've done entire presentations on dealing with difficult people, right? Because they're the ones that make us doing the right thing so hard because they don't respond in the ways that we should. So part of it really is to have a script from the beginning. And so many times difficult people, they will get us off our game. So for instance, oh, I want to set this boundary, but then they're going to overreact and explode. And then I'm going to be flustered and I'm not going to follow through. So really it's about rehearsal. It's about having a script. It's about going into these conversations, knowing exactly what you want to say and having a plan B and a plan C and a plan D and reminding yourself what the purpose is of these conversations and reminding yourself that it's still worth it to plant the seed, that you know you cannot control someone else's behavior fully but you can try to give them the tools 
to help you get what you're after in terms of a boundary, right? Try to help them succeed. So having that sort of mentality of I'm going to remain calm. I'm going to talk about my feelings. I'm not going to take the bait of them escalating the situation. This is great advice. And it got me thinking about the type of language we might use to help us in those situations. I read an article in the Journal of Consumer Research where the authors found that using direct, definitive language like don't instead of can't reveals a sense of empowerment and control. So I also think it can be helpful to be clear about the type of language you use when confronting someone to set a boundary. Instead of saying, I can't keep helping out with these extra projects, you might say something like, I don't work overtime. So now I really want to shift a little bit more deeply into virtual or remote work. Can you talk a little bit more about some of the unique challenges of maintaining healthy boundaries when we're working that way? Yeah. Oh, it would almost be easier to talk about things that aren't a challenge, right? Because it's almost like every single aspect of boundaries that we need to do our best work is jeopardized by working from home because the delineation between work and home is completely erased. We used to at least be able, if we went into a workplace, we used to be able to have that delineation at least somewhat made for us. Not anymore. And so with virtual work, I think the default is that boundaries are obliterated. And so it's up to us to build them. The default is there's no boundary. And so it really concerns me, people who have never done anything but working from home, they've got to set these boundaries from the beginning. Otherwise, they're never going to have them. And I think what people don't realize is the level of intrusion mentally of the workplace into the same place that you sleep or where you hang with your loved ones or friends That's emotionally something kind of big. I think, for instance, the idea that we're on Zoom meetings all day, perhaps, and clients or, you know, colleagues or whoever might be hearing our dog bark, might be seeing our kid pop into the frame, might be seeing our messy kitchen. That's emotionally taxing. We don't feel as protected as we did before. And when we think about the cognitive boundaries of how we can concentrate, of how we can do our best work and be productive. That's another area that for a lot of us, it's like, okay, now there's, you know, a television. Now there's my full refrigerator rather than that measly office fridge with somebody's rotten yogurt, right? Now there's my dog to hang out with all day. Now there's any number of distractions. And these don't have to be awful things. In fact, you know, working from home with a dog, hey, how great is that? But they are things that can erode our sense of productivity. And so we have to account for that. We have to set these boundaries ourselves so that we don't burn out because that's ultimately the risk of having inadequate boundaries is that we break down. We are just put upon. We feel unprotected. We're working too much. We're doing too many things at once. We don't have any sacred space at all to think. And that's what happens is that we burn out. This is backed up by evidence. Research from Zipia in 2022 suggests that as many as 86% of employees who work from home full-time experience burnout. The reasons are going to differ for each person, but like Dr. Andrea is saying, a useful solution for a lot of us is intentional boundary setting. 
Well, I was wondering if I could run you through a couple common scenarios, or at least for me, common scenarios that I've experienced in virtual work, and maybe you can help talk me through some ways I could deal with them. Would that be okay? Sure. So here's scenario one. Let's just say my boss keeps sl- slacking me after hours, and they aren't explicitly asking that I do something for them that night. By the way, my boss doesn't do this, but it's somebody's boss. <laughs> Disclaimer. But, yes. But I get the feeling that they want me to be available. However, for me, this is precious family time, and I really want to recover from the day. So what should I do? Yeah, it's really worth a conversation. You're not going to go in there and demand that your boss stop slacking you. What you're after is clarity and clarification. And it could be that your boss says, hey, you know, you're in the type of position where these things are going to come up and you have to do them. And then you can decide accordingly how to proceed. Like maybe you're going to look for a new job ultimately, but at least you have clarity. But more than likely especially if it seems like sometimes your boss is just putting these on your plate, but they're not expecting a response right that second, more than likely you will have clarity in the sense of how to work at finding middle ground, right? So it turns out maybe your boss says, yeah, well, I like to finish things up at the end of the day and just put them on your plate. It's fine if you pick them up the next morning. I just want them off my plate. Okay, wonderful. When I come in at 9 a.m., these are the things that I tackle first. So you can initiate a conversation with your boss. It might not go perfectly. Some bosses are inflexible. Some bosses have unrealistic expectations, but at least if you know that from the outset, then you can you can decide accordingly what's best for you in the long term. Scenario number two, different kind of boundary. Let's say I know that running and meditating makes me feel better. And I've even carved out an hour every morning to do that. But when that time rolls around, I seem to just magically find something else to do, like I'm answering emails or something more urgent, like doing the dishes. And it sort of seems that I'm just violating my own boundaries in that case. So what should I do? Yeah, procrastination, right, or or self-sabotage. It happens to the best of us. We know we should do this, or maybe we even want to do this, but something else we let come first. So I think you got to get to the bottom of, in that moment, what you're avoiding, because that's ultimately what you're doing. Is it that you're not setting yourself up to actually be able to do that because it is a bad time and instead you should do it at the end of the day or your running shoes are always, you know, lost in your closet and it's just too much to go and find them. Have you set yourself up to actually be able to do that habit? Because if you haven't, then the boundary just gets violated over and over again because you haven't set yourself up for success in terms of actually actually making it easy and automatic to start the habit. Um, But I think the deeper thing is really wondering if there's a part of you that is avoiding doing those things because it feels self-indulgent or it feels lazy or, "Mm, you know, I shouldn't be doing this during the workday, even though ironically, it might make you much more productive and a better worker for the rest of the day. So you really have to examine those messages. And then maybe it's too much too. maybe start smaller, maybe say, you know, it does feel like too much for me to run every single day, but I'm going to make a goal to do it today and tomorrow, twice a week, and I'm going to run for half the time, but I'm still going to do it. Start small and build from there. Mm, Yeah. Managing that feeling of mild guilt about doing something for 
oneself and mm-hmm. also, you know, starting small versus big. Definitely yes. something I can relate to. That's super mm-hmm. helpful. You're also making me just think of that great book, I think, by James Clear called Atomic Habits, where mm-hmm. I think he says something like, if you want to make it a habit, make it small, make it attractive, make it satisfying. And that is great advice. I think especially Americans, we want to blame everything on a lack of willpower or we want to call ourselves lazy. And in reality, we just haven't set ourselves up to have the habits stick. We've we've just made it ridiculously inconvenient to actually build the habits we want to. Remember my friend Tiff from earlier. How do I work in the way that's best for me, like to be the best version of myself in my job, accomplish the most, both personally and professionally, while honoring the boundaries of the people who work with me. Let's see if we can get that answered. We touch on the leader's perspective in almost every episode, but just like the other Tiffany, it's really important to me to understand where any aspect of my work-life balance falls short, and that includes as a leader. If there are ways that my boundaries, or a lack of them, might impact people around me or contribute to their stress in a big way, it feels important to address this. Here's how I phrased it to Dr. Andrea. And then let's say I'm a a manager or a leader. What are some ways that maybe I can help my employees maintain healthy boundaries? I think the first way is to model them yourself. Our employees are going to notice what we do. And you cannot value boundaries and mental health fully for your employees if you're not at least making an effort to show that balance yourself. I mean, it's the classic, you know, do as I say, not as I do kind of hypocrisy that people aren't going to feel comfortable with because you're not actually walking the walk. So, and don't be a hypocrite in terms of them either. You know, I've heard of workplaces where they talk a good game about wellness and mental health. And then the second that you take a day off without three weeks notice, they're like, well, do you have a doctor's note? What was going on exactly? Were you sick? And it's like, wait a second. You just had a presentation with HR, you know, two months ago that said we can take mental health days here and there. And now you're completely being hypocritical about that. Recognizing, too, that sometimes being supportive means not being intrusive in the sense of letting people actually do what they need to do and not micromanaging. So many people micromanage and they don't realize it because they think they're being supportive. Um, oh, did you did you end up turning that in? Did, did it go okay? And it's like, okay, now you're making me feel like you didn't trust me to do it in the first place. You know, so there's a fine line between being a cheerleader for your employees versus treating them like children who need to be <laughs> constantly having every one of their moves scrutinized. And then finally, actually being receptive to what your employees have to say, you know, doing surveys or the like and saying, what could we do differently? What do you feel like is the culture here? What would you change? What wouldn't you change? Is this a healthy environment? You can do anonymous surveying to maybe increase the honesty and actually being receptive to the results. It's it's hard because we don't want to hear that our employees aren't happy, but it's also very important if we actually want to make positive changes. I think one of the things that we best can do is be human as managers, right? I think that so many times we're looking to optimize the way that our employees work and we want data and the technology is going to revolutionize things. It's really interesting when we drill down and we look at the data of what makes a healthy workplace and what doesn't. 
a lot of it is just human qualities. It's trust, it's respect, it's integrity, it's fairness. It's all of these things that come from human beings. They don't come from metrics. Being respectful about the fact that we're humans first and workers second and modeling that behavior, that's what it all comes down to. Because people stay at jobs ultimately because they feel like they're treated well as human beings and they like the other human beings they're with. You know, it's amazing how many times people leave the jobs for reasons that have nothing to do with the actual job itself and everything to do with the people and the human quality. So we've got to keep that in mind ultimately whenever we're doing anything to try to model certain behaviors. It's about being a person and being the type of person that we want to be. Well, Andrea, you have such a wonderful way of making really complicated ideas feel simple and very doable and very human. So thank you so much for your very accessible advice and also for your time today. Thank you so much for this opportunity and also for being willing to talk about these issues because I see so many people struggling with this stuff that it's so great to have a dialogue about it. Yeah, I just learned so much and I'm already thinking of, oh, there's like five things I need to do today. (laughs) Put a boundary and just do one of those things. So um, yes, indeed. This conversation was so helpful for me. Setting healthy boundaries is something I've struggled with for as long as I can remember. And I couldn't have asked for a better interviewee than Andrea to remind me how to master this important life skill. So takeaways. Boundaries are simple structures that help us act according to what feels or doesn't feel right to us. To improve your boundary-setting chops, remember, number one, it's not mean or selfish to set boundaries. Letting other people know what they can expect from you, and vice versa, helps us get along better. Number two, if you're looking to set a boundary, start by asking yourself, what's important to me? If a situation consistently drains you or makes you feel frustrated and resentful, that's a good sign that one of your values is being crossed, and you might need a better boundary. Number three, if you need to have a tough conversation about a boundary, try to respond, not just react. That means being empathetic, but also clear about what you need. How can you help the other person succeed at meeting your boundary? And finally, if you're a leader, Remember to model healthy boundaries. If you never take breaks and send emails at all hours of the night, your employees might feel compelled to do the exact same. So that's a wrap for season one. When we started this podcast experiment, I didn't know what to expect. I had only ever interviewed a handful of people and I had no idea whether anyone would listen to a podcast about remote work. I'm lucky that we've had some experts, our producers from Cosmic Standard, to guide us and that the guests we've chosen have been universally thoughtful, cogent, and entertaining. My interviews with each of them felt like getting a personal lecture from a favorite professor. Most of the lessons our guests taught us over the past few months, how critical it is to be intentional with our time, why rituals matter so much to our well-being, all the reasons why being explicit and clear, even when it's tough, is kind, apply not only to remote work, but to life in general. I know that what I've learned here will follow me long after season one ends. And speaking of never ending, 
We're cooking up a season two with more remote work wisdom on everything from managing mental chatter to maintaining your ability to focus as we speak. We'll be back in full swing in the spring of next year. In the meantime, be sure to check out our feed for bonus content. Thank you so much for listening. Remotely Curious is brought to you by Dropbox and our friends at Cosmic Standard. Our hardworking producers are Beauty Nazaro, Samaya Adams, Angela Johnston, and Asia Pilar Simpson. Our editor is Nina Gensler-Debs. Our technical director is Jacob Winnick. And our executive producer is Eliza Smith. Our designers are April Rosenstock, Feliz Camille Tolentino, Fanny Lore, Gabriela Tayenda, and Justin Tran. Our theme song is composed by Doug Stewart, and I'm your host, Tiffany Jones-Brown. Thanks also to our comms whiz, Alyssa Stewart, our head of Virtual First, Terry Weiner, our copywriter, MJ Speakman, and our friends on the web authoring and Virtual First Tiger teams. Special thanks to Tiffany Crow for sharing her story. And of course, Dr. Andrea Banya for her incredibly insightful and useful knowledge. She really did make things clear and accessible. You can find her work at detoxyourthoughts.com and at Dr. Andrea Bonnier on Twitter and Instagram. And for more tips on setting boundaries at work, check out the Dropbox Virtual First Toolkit at remotely-curious.com.